We're teaching a series right now entitled uh, The Greatness of God, where we examine God's CV, His curriculum vitae, His resume, if you'd like. And this class this morning is one where I want to start out by pointing out that all of us, in some way, shape, form, or fashion, have some type of a social circle. That group of people that we associate with. Now, our social circle may be one that's formed around our jobs, or our schools, or our community and neighbors, or social groups, or church. But, but we have one or more social circles, people who are our friends, people with whom we associate. Now it's interesting, the sociologists tell us that deep within the human psyche and brain is this desire to associate with people who tend to look like ourselves. From an early age, we tend to like people who are like we are. We seek them out. Perhaps you are familiar with the phrase, birds of a feather flock together, right? Who's heard that phrase? I did not make that up. I decided I'd see how old that phrase is. Did you know, in the English language, that phrase, birds of a feather flock together, goes back to William Turner in 1545. Although, he didn't quite say it the same way. William Turner said, Birds of one kind and color flock and fly always together. But it didn't even really start with him. We can go back to Plato. Plato who dies in the mid-300s, like 348 or so B.C. Plato said, and I'll put it into an English translation, it's William Jewett's translation, men of my age flock together. We are birds of a feather, as the old proverb says. <laughs> this was the old proverb in Plato's day. It's been around for a long time. It's deeply ingrained in the way we think and process things. This is very important for us to understand. I'm not saying it's always that way. We've got a time right now where social scientists are saying that the generation that came of age in the last eight years may be a blip in the screen. Where instead of associating with those whom are like them, they have a tendency to find the people they want to be like and associate with them instead. But we've got this in our brain. It's deep ingrained in us. It's in our programming almost of our computers. And that has an effect on how we see God. See, 
we have a tendency to see God the way that we want God to be. We want to have a relationship with Him. We want to associate with Him. Birds of a feather flock together. So God should be the best and the biggest of whatever we think is the most valuable and important. And that's how we have a tendency to see God. This is why most ancient societies were the way they were. Most ancient societies recognized that that there were God or gods, but they tended to think that the gods were just supersized humans. If you ever go look at Greek statues, you'll see the difference. So they would just take who we are and put it on a supersized scale. Becky and I had to run to New Orleans yesterday. We had to go to Chick-fil-A to get some food to eat on the way. We drove through. They serve waffle fries. I ordered the small fries for Becky. (laughs) Got the super size for me. Same fries, different container. Our tendency is to see God through our own lens of what we think God should be. And that's the fight that we've got. And if we try to build a construct of God simply with our wisdom and mind, looking at the world around us, we are going to fall prey to developing a God that is what we want God to be rather than understanding who God is. Now, if I want to understand who God is, the key, I believe, the key to understanding who God is and having success in that, overcoming my natural tendency to shape God and what I'd like Him to be, the key is going to be Scripture. As Christians, we believe that God has revealed Himself through Scriptures. And so we look to the Bible because we know within the context of Scripture that we will see how God, beginning as early as Genesis, but God continued to reveal Himself further and further and further and further in greater detail, in greater clarity, as He worked through Scripture. And so with that in mind, I think what we need to do is we need to go to Scripture And let it transform our view of God. Let it pull back what we see and let it give light and color to our understanding of who God is. So with that as your background and your introduction, here's the beginning question for this class. Who is God? Now, Miss Carolyn, you're laughing. Why are you laughing? 
Because God is God, she said. Well, but I want to know who that is. That is a wonderful question. Now, there was a Greek, uh, uh, Greek, there was a French, Greece, France, who knows, it's over there. There was a French mathematician and philosopher named Rene Descartes. Famous for saying, I think, therefore I am. The father of modern rationalism. Or at least one of the fathers of modern rationalism. Rene Descartes was always trying to figure out rationally how do we build from where we are to what we can know for certain. He's famous for the, the Latin, I think, therefore I am. He actually wrote it in Latin and French. I think, therefore I am. And he starts with that premise. And he tries to figure out what he can know for certain with reliability based upon that. Now, I do not want to take away from the rationality that is believing in God. Because it's a very logical thing to believe in God. I think that it makes more sense than any of the alternatives. And I've taught on this and I've written on this exhaustively. But I will tell you that our image of God, if we try to construct it just from our logical mind, our brains have too many problems with them to come to certain conclusions without God revealing it first. Okay, here's the kind of freebie that you get just because you're in the class and Brent did the announcements so fast, I've got an extra two minutes. Go to the Elmo, please. All right. So, yes, my undergraduate degree is in biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek, but I minored in economics because I thought I might need something useful. <laughs> then I determined economics was of no use whatsoever. But Hebrew and Greek have gotten me through the Bible. Um, so when I was studying economics, there is this area of economics that's just supply and demand, uh, macroeconomics theories, uh, money supply, an inverse relationship between uh, inflation and, and, and monetary supply and, and, and how stagflation hit under Jimmy Carter and why it did and all of this kind of mess. Okay? But economics, <coughs> excuse me, especially in the 70s and before, was thought to be pretty logical. They thought people made decisions logically. They thought the only reason people quit being logical is if their emotions overwhelm them through fear, through anger, through lust. People lose logical thinking when emotion overwhelms them. But otherwise, people are pretty logical, so we can predict behavior. 
But then there's this other area called behavioral psychology. And behavioral psychology says, nah, people don't really act logically. There are certain fallacies within our brains. You'd like to think you're logical, and to some degree you may be, but almost all of us are hardwired with problems in the way our brains function. And it's not emotion that causes us to do things that may not be the most rational. It's the way we are as fallen people. Well, the behavioral psychologists and the economists got together at some point, and they found this in a Venn diagram, this middle ground. And that became behavioral economics. Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize for this. It's this idea of how do we predict people's economic behavior, understanding how irrational people can be. Total freebie. It's got nothing to do with this class. Except to say the following, if we go back to the PowerPoint. Our brains do not always think rationally, whether it's talking about money or whether it's talking about who God is. And that's recognized in the world of science. That's 101 now. In the 70s when I was studying it, it was cutting edge. Now it's accepted. There are some ways your brain confirmation bias. A principal example. We tend to understand evidence to confirm what we already believe. So we've got all of these different things. Now those come into play when we think about God. And we have a tendency to want God to be who we want Him to be. And we'll understand things to in light of who we believe God ought to be. And that all too often is based on who we are and what we value. You talk to a young generation person today and they will give you a different idea of who God is than they would have if you'd talked to them 30 years ago. Someone in the same position. Because culture and society has moved. So for me the question is, who is God? Not who do I want God to believe? I mean, who do I want God to be? But who is He? And I can't answer that adequately with my own reasoning, my own tastes, my own personal preferences. I think the answers to who is God have to be found in the Bible, which is where He revealed Himself to us. That's why when I talk about God's CV in this class, his curriculum vitae, the course of his life, if we translate the Latin, if we talk about who God is, it's only illuminated by the Bible. It may be confirmed by my existence, it may be confirmed by my understanding, but I need to look as a principal source where God revealed himself. That is different, that's, that's top-down understanding rather than bottom-up. Rather than reason myself to God, I want to understand how God has revealed himself. Now some people may say, well wait a minute, then you've got no basis for believing in God. 
No, 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 no. God reveals himself to me. I will take that revelation and I will rationally, logically, with clear mind, hopefully, try to examine it, that revelation to see if it's consistent with the world around me. Does it explain you? Does it explain me? Does it explain why we are the way we are? Does it explain why our brains don't work the way I'd like my brain to work sometimes? Does it explain why sometimes I fear things I shouldn't fear? Does it explain sometimes why my heart cries out for justice? Does it explain sometimes why I don't think God is there? Does it explain those things? And I'm obviously speaking on behalf of different personalities. I'm not at a point, you don't worry, Mark doesn't think God is there. Oh, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm staking my life on it, okay? But I'm going to do it by His revelation and comparing that to the world around me and to the world inside me to see if it provides the best explanation for why things are the way they are. So I'm not saying... Make a blind leap of faith to believe in God because he's got to reveal himself. What I am saying is understand who he is by how he's revealed himself and see if it doesn't make sense in light of our world. As opposed to looking at our world to decide what God must be like and then imposing that on the Bible. Okay? So that's why we're looking at God's CV. And the beginning section of God's CV is, I've written it. And, and heavens, I better be real careful. Y'all are better too. Because if lightning strikes me for claiming to have put God down on a sheet of paper, then the front three rows are gone too. <laughs> I'll back up a little bit. That's just two rows. Uh, so with fear and trepidation and all humility we hope, I have tried to put together a CV that I think is appropriate for us to examine certain things about God. And the first section I've put is what is normally in a CV on a human scale and that's personal information. I want to look at the traits of God. I want to hone in this morning on God being all-loving. But if I'm going to do that accurately, I need to do it illuminated by Scripture. I mean, Scripture tells us in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. But love is a tough word in the English language. I... I, I I was trying a case one time in Boston, and it was particularly humorous in federal court in Boston. Rick? Where's Rick? I don't know if you were up there for this one or not, but Bob was there. Dr. Bob will remember this. The judge pulled me aside and urged me to know, before the trial started, that Boston had a much smarter jury pool than I was probably used to being from Texas. <laughs> That I would not need to explain things so clearly. That I would not need to illustrate my points. 
that I just needed to recognize the chasm between the Boston jury and the Texas jury. It was the second or third day of trial, Dr. Bob, when the judge told us uh, one of the jurors couldn't read and write and couldn't speak English. And she didn't know how that ju juror had made it on there, but, uh, and I was sitting there thinking, you know, we can do that down in Texas. <laughs> Love is a tough word, though. It's a tough word in the English language. See, I used the word. I got the word. Let me tell you something. I love my wife and our little grandbaby. I love them. I also love our dog. But I do not feel the same way about our dog that I do my wife. Heavens, I love apple pie. But I do not feel the same way about apple pie as I do my wife, my grandbaby, or my dog. I'd a lot rather have apple pie than my dog. Hot dog. Now you're talking. We use that same word love and just spread it all around. Now, if we had a Greek philosopher here, I feel like the Greek philosopher would tell us there must be different words for love. Because in Greek, there were. In biblical times and before, people writing Greek, uh, they had a bunch of words they could pick from. I'd like to share some of those with you. So when we say God is love, we've got a good idea of what the biblical writers are revealing about God. Because I think we may get the wrong idea if not. We may be taking our idea of love and transporting it onto who God is. You know who I feel bad for? Well, a lot of people in a lot of circumstances. <laughs> My wife, for one, having to put up with me. But I feel bad for people who grew up without a, a, a wonderful father or mother. I'll focus in on father for a moment. Because we're told to pray to God and to see him as our father. And if we just take from that our understanding of a human father, then those of us who were blessed with a good father are going to do fine. But those who were blessed with some cretin for a father will really have trouble with their God image because of our tendency to take what we have and impose it upon him rather than understand who he is so that we can see maybe my dad was a cretin. You follow the difference? So we might do the same thing with love. So let's look at love and let's understand the biblical idea of God being love. There's a first Greek word I want you to learn. It's phileo. Say phileo for me. Phileo. That's a wonderful Greek word for love. Phileo is such a wonderful place it belongs in a city. Philadelphia. Or as Rocky pronounces it, Philadelphia. 
Philadelphia's motto is city of brotherly love because the phila part is the Greek word for love. Delphia, by the way, is the Greek word for city. But it's a brotherly love. That picture, by the way, is Love Park in Philadelphia. Been around for, I don't know, 40 years or so to honor the city of brotherly love. Phileo means a brotherly love. A buddy love. It's something or someone for whom or which we have affection. Not a, 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 a physical attraction, but I care. An affection. Now this word's used in the New Testament in a lot of different places. I'll throw up a couple of passages that we can look at. Um, give you a good flavoring. Matthew twenty three twenty six. Matthew twenty three twenty six. Says the following. Let's see if we can make this come to life. Matthew twenty three twenty six. Is that the passage I wrote down? I love it when I am wrong. I have not written the passage right. Let me tell you what it says. I want 23, verse 6, not 26. Jesus is talking about the scribes and Pharisees that uh, were not to be modeled because they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. They love greetings in the marketplaces. They love being called rabbi for other, by others. That word love there, phileo, means uh, it's, it stokes their, they, 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 are, they have an affection for that. They really love it. That's one type of love. Um, Matthew or Luke 20, 46, much the same thing. Matthew 10, 37. Matthew 10, 37. Look at this one. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And you just read that in English and that's troublesome for people. They say, well, why is, you know, that's like, who do you love more, your mother or your father? You're not supposed to ask those questions. Jesus, if we understand he's talking about an affection, if you care more, if you have a greater affection for anything other than God, your priorities are wrong. Your heart should be God first. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at John 12, 25. John 12, 25 says... Whoever loves his life, 
loses it. Whoever hates his life will keep it for eternal life. Whoever loves his life, that's the Greek word phileo. If you have an affection for yourself. Now, of course, we, Jesus also says to love your neighbors as you love yourself. So there is some idea that you're supposed to love yourself. But Jesus is talking here about some affection for yourself. If you're living to make yourself happy, if the purpose of your life is to bring joy to yourself, if you've embraced hedonism in the 21st century and said, my reason for living is my personal happiness, that means more to me than anything else, you will lose what true life is all about. That's what Jesus is saying. You've got to be willing to say, I abhor, I detest, I am not interested in my pleasure in this world as my priority. I'm interested in something greater. Those are the people who will find true life. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at John 16, 27. John 16, 27 says, mm, Okay, that's 27, isn't it? Yes. For the Father himself loves you. That's phileo. Because you have loved me, phileo, and have believed that I came from God. God has affection for you. God has affection for me. If you grew up in a home without affection, welcome to the home of the Lord because it is a home of affection. We have an affectionate God who cares about you and loves you. John 5.20 The words used a lot. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son. Phileo is affectionate and shows him all that he's doing. Jesus, God incarnate, God the Son, is loved by God the Father in an affectionate way. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, phileo, affection, someone or something for which we have affection. I hope our deepest affection is not ourselves. I hope it's not where we're sitting at church. I hope it's not popularity and being greeted in the marketplace. Hello, rabbi, they know me. If that's our affection, we're going to lose our life. But if our affection is in God, as His affection is on us, what a life we will lead.
So, when we look at God's CV and we talk about God being all-loving, we need to recognize part of that is God has affection toward us. There's a second Greek word you need to know for love. It's eros. Say it with me. Eros. Eros, we get the word erotic from it. Doesn't mean erotic. But that's our one of the words that we've derived from it in the English language. What it does mean is a deep passion or lust. Now, I don't have any pictures for you of deep passion and lust. <laughs> that's just like, that ain't happening, okay? <laughs> you do not find eros in your New Testament. That is not the type of love. God, God does not lust for us. And you're saying, well, of course he doesn't. Oh, the Greek gods did. The Greek gods were gods of lust. Lust was personified as a godly trait in virtue. They'd have temple prostitutes. You'd go see the temple prostitute and claim to be worshiping gods. It's no accident the New Testament does not use that word. That is not who God is. God is not a supersized human with supersized lust and passion. If you want to find the word eros in the Bible, the verb, erao at least, you've got to go to the Greek translation of the Old Testament and when you get to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'll find it in a place like Proverbs 7.18. Proverbs 7.18. Here's Eros love. This is the prostitute who meets the naive fellow on the street and entices him to come to her home, where they will take their fill of love until morning and delight ourselves with eros, passion and lust. It's also found in the Greek version of the Old Testament in Proverbs 30, verses 15 and 16. There are four things, three things that are never sated, four that never say enough. One of them is, is land that's thirsty for water in the Hebrew Old Testament. Another one is the womb that's barren, that wants a child. Fire. You know, you, it never says, okay, I'll burn now without wood. I've had enough wood. I don't need anything more. You know, you've, if you want it to burn, you've got to keep feeding it. When the Hebrews translated that into Greek, instead of saying the, the, the woman's womb that's barren, they put in there the, the lustful love of a woman. Those are the only places you're going to find it, biblically. So when we talk about God being all loving, don't ever begin to think that God's lusting for you. You are not so marvelous that God's going, that, oh man, i got to have some of him or her. No. No. Next Greek word. Agape. 
You probably have heard that word. Say it with me. Agape. Now, preachers and teachers have a problem sometimes. And, and I, mea culpa, I'm guilty. Okay? I try not to be. But here's our problem. Our problem is, if we can take something complicated and simplify it down in a way that makes a really good message, then we want to do that. Now, I'm all for trying to figure out how to take the complicated and make it sensible. That's what I do for a living. But you can never do, we, we should never do it at the sacrifice of truth. Okay? So, this is one of these words that if you ask 99 out of 100, they're going to tell you agape means unconditional love. Well, no, it really doesn't. You get there eventually, but that's not really the thrust of the word. So at the risk of offending 99.9% .9 of the sermons you've ever heard, I want to back away from that just a little bit because you guys can go a little bit deeper. And I want you to understand a little bit more of the Word because I think it will help you understand who God is. Agape is a love that means I'm interested in your welfare. I'm interested in what's good for you. That's the real thrust. It's another's type love. And ultimately, in a sense, it's unconditional, but maybe not. That's not, the unconditionality is not rooted within the word. The word's rooted in, I'm interested in Mel. I'm interested in what's good for you. I'm interested in your welfare. That's an agape love. Now, I'm not interested, I hope, because you're going to do something for me. Though he did give me this really cool pocket knife once. But I was interested before that, Mel. I'm interested. Because of a decision I've made to be interested in his welfare or her welfare. There's Kelly Leone sitting right next to Dr. Bob. I am interested in your welfare, in what's good for you. I love you in an agape sense. That's what that means. You with me? It, it's, I care. I care about what happens to you. Now this word is used a lot, especially in John and especially by Paul. But I've pulled out a couple of passages for you. In fact, let me add some more. John 13, 35. Different word for love than we were looking at in John 12 and in John 15. John 13, 35. Okay, how did I really, really mess up? I'm like really gun shy now. Okay, it's 1334. Would y'all like to know what time I was doing this PowerPoint? <laughs> John 1334. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. Oh, it is in 35. By this all people will know you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. All of those. Agape. All of those. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a new commandment. That you care for each other. That you have interest in each other's welfare. And people are going to know that you're my children because I have an interest in your welfare. I care for you, Jesus says. So if you'll care for each other, it's a novel thing. It's new. It's fresh. But it will change the world. Uh, We we don't just find it there. Uh, John 15, 13. Just a couple of pages over. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you agape one another, that you care for one another. As I've cared for you, care for people's welfare, care for their good. If they're hurting, care about that. If they need something, care about that. If they're trapped in sin, care about that. If they're lonely, care about that. Then Jesus says, greater Love, agape, caring has no one than this to lay down their life for their friends. There's no greater care than to say, I care so much about your welfare. I will die on your behalf. Romans 5, 8. Look at some of Paul's usage of this word. Caring for others. Romans 5, 8. 5, 8. God shows his caring for us. His agape. For us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did that because he cares for us. He did that because he's interested in our welfare. He didn't wait for us to say, "Um, would you please die for me? He did it before. He didn't wait for us to clean up our acts so we could deserve it. He did it before. The emphasis is because he cares for us. And you want to know what's going to separate you from his caring for you and your welfare? From his agape love? Nothing. Nothing. Because this is Romans 8. Death will not separate you from his care for you. From his concern for your welfare. Your life won't stop that. Angels won't stop that. There's not a president of any country, a king of any nation, a totalitarian dictator who can stop God caring for you. There's nothing in the world right now and there's nothing coming tomorrow. That will stop God from caring for you. Nothing's tall enough. Nothing's deep enough. There's nothing in all of creation. That will ever separate you. From the care. That God has for you. Expressed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing. Oh you don't know how bad I. Oh don't even go to that pity party. There is no asterisk. In what Paul wrote. 
where down in the footnote he says, well, except for a couple of people at Champion Forest Baptist Church in the year 2019, they were real boneheads and God really doesn't care for them anymore. (laughs) It's not there. 1 Corinthians 13, you want to know what kind of love that is? It's agape. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't care about other people, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, I can understand all mysteries. I've got all knowledge. I've got all faith. I can move mountains, but I don't care about other people. I'm a zero. If I give away all I have, hmm. If I deliver up my body to be burned, but I'm not doing it because I care about other people. I've gained nothing. If you care about other people, you're patient. You're kind. If you care about other people, you don't envy them. You're not trying to impress them. You're not arrogant or haughty. You're not rude to them. You don't insist on your own way if you care about other people. You're not irritable and resentful. You don't get excited when something bad happens. You rejoice with the truth. If you care about other people, you can handle, bear all things. You'll believe all things. You'll hope all things. You'll endure all things. Faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is caring for other people. That's pretty, pretty amazing, isn't it? Okay, so back to the PowerPoint, please. When we read that God... Uh-oh. PowerPoint? Ah, they're wonderful. When we read that God is all-loving... That passage actually in 1 John that I was quoting, God is love, is agape. God cares for others. God is concerned for our good. All right, it's 11.51. We got time for one more quick word. I'll do it fast. Because there are several more Greek words for love. There's another Greek word for love, storge. You want to say storge? Storge. It's not found in the New Testament. Sorry, <clears throat> as the word, but the concept's very biblical. It's a parental love for children, generally. It can be used in other times and other ways, but that's the meat of this meaning. It's that parental love we have for our children. And I say it's not used as a word in the New Testament, but the concept is very biblical. Isaiah 49, 15 through 16, the prophet's talking about the time where Israel would think that God forgot them. And, and, and the prophet God asks through the prophet, God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child or fail to have compassion upon it? She'll sooner forget than I'll forget you, Israel. Behold, I've engraved my people on the palm of my hand. Your walls are always before me, Jerusalem. God's saying, I care for you more than a mother or her child. It's a great parental love. 
It's why one of the relationships we're called into with God is to be adopted as children so that we call him Abba, Father. Abba, an Aramaic word of of familiarity as Father. That's that's what, what we have. We have a God who does love us in a parental way. Now here's the key. There are two sides to every coin. And we tend to think in our language of love and hate being opposites, but they're not. Ecclesiastes 3.8 says, There's a time to love and a time to hate. Isaiah 61 and Amos 5 both talk about how God loves and hates. Romans 12.9, Paul says, let your love be genuine, hate what is evil. Luke 6, 26 and 27 and through 36 is this long story where Jesus talks about the importance of loving and hating. So how does that mesh? Well, I'd love to tell you next week. (laughs) It's very important. It's on God's CV. But for now, we've got to go. So here's our action for this week. First of all, I want to praise the God of love who's affectionate for us who cares for our welfare, who cares for our good. Not because we're worthy, we're not. But because that's who he is in his character. And then I want to imitate that love of God by caring for others, all others. I want to care about the welfare of others. Not simply those in my family and those in my social circle. Not simply those who have the same values I do, or the same skin color I do, or the same hairstyle I do. Not those who have the same education I do, or the same profession I do. Not those who live only in my community. Not those who live only in my city. Not those who live only in my state. Not those who live only in my country. I want to have care and concern for the world that Jesus died for. And I need to figure out how that comes about responsibly. And then last, I need to shun and hate the evil I encounter. And I'll tell you more of why next week. So may I bless you in the name of Jesus. And I'll see you guys next Sunday, God willing. Father, we thank you for your love. And we pray that you'll pour your love out on all of us. That we will sense and and feel and recognize your affection toward us. That we will bask in the warmth of your care. Trusting you for today and tomorrow. Knowing you are trustworthy. Bless all who hear this message with your love, Father. Through Jesus, our loving Lord, we pray, amen.